welcome to this very special Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, suddenly there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. Now it's special not only because the sun has been shining in London for what seems like the first time uh, in weeks or maybe even months, but because we're also delighted to welcome John Watson. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Nick. Now, um, John, as you may know, is a five-time Grand Prix winner with Penske, Brabham and McLaren, a uh, sports car racer with Jaguar, Porsche and Toyota. Um, and if you'll permit me, John, um, one of the finest racing commentators there is. So uh, we'll start off with a, uh, with a pleasantry and <laughs> just to get you into the right mood of this, uh, this podcast. Um, also joining us today, we have Simon Aaron, our features editor here, and uh, the newly promoted um, digital ed editor. So it's uh, Jack Phillips here to join us today as well. Um, now, John, I'm going to start with um, your last podcast, actually, 2009. Um, you want to say about Kimi Raikkonen <laughs> lying in the gutter spewing <laughs> up his what? Oh no, actually, it does actually refer to I know Kimi. That, I know that's got a massive, <laughs> massive reaction. It's not. It's, it, it, well, it kind of relates to Kimi. So you said uh, Kimi should take a sabbatical um, and that more oil-rich states uh, would be hosting Formula One Grand Prix. So the first thing, uh, can I have your lottery numbers? That's, that's the first <laughs> thing. <laughs> and secondly, what makes you so good at predicting or proposing what motor racing is, is or what it needs? I think sometimes, I mean, I'm not a sage. I, I don't know things that other people, more people in sport would certainly have knowledge of. I, I trust intuition, instinct, and you know, I, I suppose maybe much of my life has been guided by those two values. So. I'll have a lot of rants and shoot from the lip and the hip and whatever. And just sometimes one of them, one out of 10 and one out of 20 might hit the mark. Otherwise, maybe so far off the radar that no one ever picks them up. <laughs> okay, I'm going to wind us all the way back now. So um, the TT at Dundrod, um, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by this because you, you were stood there as, as, as a kid watching yeah. um, Fangio and the other greats. T tell me, this, this, mm. was, this was the seminal moment for you, was it? This, this moment watching these greats scream by in, in your home. Tell, tell me more about this this time. Well, first of all, the tourist trophy race, the oldest race, I think, in the British calendar. And at this period, it was being run on the Dundrod circuit just outside Belfast, very near to the the airport was called Nuts Corner, which is quite appropriate when you consider anybody that drove a Dundrod probably had to be a bit of a nut because it is, and still is, and I say this now even in what is it, whatever date we are in August, it, about 90% of that original racetrack is still, it's a time capsule. And it's a great shame that maybe the tourist authorities in Northern Ireland or the local governments, whatever, have not seen to make more of it. It's an asset that's sitting there crying out to get recognized and, and, and used. And when you think about all the events that take place around Europe, and I just competed this year in the Mille Mille retrospective. Okay, you can't do a thousand laps of Dundrod 
but or a thousand miles of Dundrod, but the circuit. And if anybody ever goes to Northern Ireland and flies into Nuts Corner, or as it's now known better as Aldergrove, uh, drive around what is 90% or so of the original racetrack, you will be shocked because it is, it, it's a brilliant, brilliant racetrack. But in the paddock in 1955, I think it was nine or so, nine years of age, my family were friendly with Ron Flockhart, and Ron was racing in what was uh, one of the MGAs, the factory MGAs. I think they may have had one of them or two of them with the, the twin cam engine that went into the MGA at a later date. And Ron, I believe, or from memory, was staying with us over that weekend. So in the paddock and looking around and just seeing, just, you know, maybe it was the cars initially, but then realizing that you had the top drivers in the world competing in a, a round of the World Sports Car Championship. And one of the, one of the, the, the things I'm going to bang on about, what a contrast to the sham that we have at Le Mans, where Le Mans in the 50s was the, may have been one of the greatest, if not the greatest race, because of people. And it's people that make events. Technology and cars embrace it, enhance it, but it's people, and, and seeing those drivers and having Juan Manuel Fangio, who's been my hero, Sterling Moss, uh, Mike Hawthorne, Peter Collins, I can't remember all the names, but all the top drivers of the, in the world at that time, in, certainly in sports car and Formula One, were competing. And it just was like, I couldn't believe it. I was there amongst them. I think from memory I, I did get a Mike Hawthorne Autograph. With you, wow. Um, I don't know where it is now, but... Yeah. Probably on eBay, isn't it? No, no, it's not. <laughs> I, th I think I enhanced it with green ink when I was a schoolboy to make it look more impressive. But it, it just those... And I think that's what's lacking um, maybe in motorsport in general, that everybody is polarised into one, one aspect of, of their form, of their um, careers. It was, a, it was a dream. It just, you know, children have dreams, and I think children and I'm speaking as somebody who's not a parent, but had the benefit of having parents who allowed me to have these dreams. The difference was at that point, I don't think my family ever considered that my dream would ever be something I could go on and fulfill, but they allowed me to have it. We had a family motor business and that was the direction I was being uh, directed towards. So I had these dreams and all the way through my adolescence and childhood and then when I started to race as a, as a family affair in, in 1964, it was an extension of what my father had done. And instead of us supporting my father, then my family were supporting me. But it was club racing in Ireland, both north and south, and it was competitive in its own field. But the prospect of somebody at that point moving into the international motorsport field was very rare. I mean, there had been one or two who had done so, notably Des Desmond Titterington in the 50s, and Desmond could have been uh, certainly a Grand Prix driver. I know, he, I know he drove a number of Formula One races, and he was a great sports car driver, but Desmond, I think through family issues, decided to hang up his helmet in a time when motorsport was dangerous. And then one or two others had competed, and, and probably Paddy Hobkirk would be notable, in the early 60s, not so much as a rally driver, but as a race driver, and, and on it went. But I think then, when I moved forward in 1970, I was the first driver who consciously set out on a career to compete in a, a European Championship and had aspirations to be a Grand Prix driver. So it, it all, 
I suppose, stemmed from what I saw in the paddock at Dundrod. But there's something else I saw in the paddock at Dundrod. It was the beginning of a love affair. And that was the first time I ever saw a Porsche in, in life, both a 356 Coupe and a 550 Spider. And something about the look of the car, the sound of the car, the, the fact that there was, was the little guy you know, outperforming some of the, the big guys. And from that point forward, that was the mark that I supported and, and fundamentally have, have bought into. Yeah, okay. Can I just ask you to um, expand upon a, a couple of words in an answer and a half ago, Le Mans and Sham. Well, why, why are you so um, sort of against the, the, the way Le Mans is at the moment? I'll say two things, two words. One is Alonso and one is Indianapolis. When Fernando Alonso set off to do his adventure, or take part in his adventure, the amount of global interest in the event Indianapolis 500 went up, I don't know how what percentage, it went up f massively. And it just indicated that the power of the person, the personality, the character, the driver, the world champion, is way greater than unbelievably stupid, expensive, complex vehicles which run around, and this year's Le Mans, there were five of them. Forget about Colin Colors' car because it wasn't a hybrid car in the sense of Porsche and Toyota. And the reason I say it is because I remember Le Mans as a child. I remember listening to it on radios. And when I was at boarding school, you know, the radio would be little transistors. You barely get any, any, any volume out of it to listen to the reports coming through every hour, three hours, whatever. And there were all, I think, the principal names of the race drivers, Grand Prix drivers, Indy car drivers, not even in some cases probably NASCAR drivers, competing. And I think that Le Mans has lost vision as to what makes their race such a special event. They're focused on this hybrid technology, which is very interesting for engineers and very interesting maybe for Le Mans because there are side benefits which I understand they, they, they enjoy. But as far as the public is concerned, I think they want to see names that they are familiar with. And while there are many great names that currently compete at Le Mans, wouldn't it be wonderful if some of the Alonzos or the Hamiltons or the Vettels competed? Now, Mark Webber did compete. Mark was just one of a very few that have you know, stopped Formula One and moved in. But I would like to see a field of what would be the, the top drivers in any field, be it IndyCar, NASCAR, Formula One, all go to Le Mans, because that's what I think the public are interested in, and that's why I think the direction that they've gone in with this high-tech, you know, expensive, one race, once a year, only one team can win it. I, I wonder why Porsche have decided to stop. I think um, Formula One doesn't help itself. You know, it does restrict all of its drivers to purely doing Formula One. Obviously, Hulkenberg was the exception. So maybe there isn't the interest from the Formula One drivers now to do Le Mans like there used to be. I think that that is pretty much the case. And I have said that if I had been uh, Alonso's boss, I wouldn't have let him do it because I would want to protect my interest. But maybe the future for motorsport is to be a little bit less sort of insular and understand that what's going to make the sport grow further is really public interest and public support. And by being isolationist, maybe you're going to lose some of your fan base. And I think the message that and whether I was right or wrong, my view is that I wouldn't have let them do it. But the point, that I think, is that the support and the interest globally in Alonso going and competing in Indy was, I just thought, unbelievable. And there, there is something there to be registered with 
Formula One teams in particular, may be this very precious approach that has been adopted since really the end of the 70s, early 80s, uh, might need to be revisited. I think you just got to look at the um, the numbers watching the live stream of Alonso practicing yeah, on his own. I did it. I was one of those <laughs> exactly. people. We well, were well, in the office. Then, yeah. Almost <laughs> every screen in the office was tuned. It was tuned, and right. we, we realised after but, that no, but, we were all doing the but same. But Simon, thing. it was because you wanted to wait and see when that Honda engine blew up. You weren't interested <laughs> in the driver. All you wanted to see was the bad side of the story. But the good news is the power of the personality, and that has always been. I think sport is always about people. It's not about. I mean. I watch test match cricket, largely because I like Sky's coverage and I like the interaction between the various experts. But I don't want to know about the stitching in the cricket ball, whether it's hand, knit one, pearl one, knit one, pearl one. <laughs> I want to know about what a bowler is going to do to a batsman. And I think that Formula One has gone down this avenue, as other aspects of motorsport have done, Le Mans particularly, of extreme technology it's unbelievably clever it's not going to save the world but it might help some of the directions toward where we might want to go to but it isn't what the public actually i believe want to watch they want to be entertained they want to see competition they don't want to see a race of five cars over a 24-hour period in my view you you commentate nowadays on the blanc pound gt series very successful 55 60 car grids gt3 cars Massive diversity among manufacturers, some high-quality drivers, cars look great, sound great. Would you actually like to see Le Mans become a GT race, get rid of the prototypes altogether? I know there's a political thing now because the WEC GT rules are slightly different to GT3 rules and so on, but do you think that would be a, a, a good answer? Well, I, I would in one sense because I think that that's where Le Mans began because the cars that raced Le Mans when it was in its introduction were fundamentally road-going cars. So... On the other hand, of course, the Spa 24-hour race, which was the last, was the biggest race in the Blancpain calendar, it would have a bearing on that. So the Blancpain 24 is a GT race. Le Mans is a, a race made up of four separate categories. But in some respects, yes, I would like to see that kind of revision to what Le Mans is trying to achieve. And I went to Le Mans in 1963, 64. What was, which was the first year of the GT40s there? Was it 63? 64. Five, wasn't it? No, 64, no, yeah. 64, 64. Okay, and <clears throat> in that you had clearly recognisable, you know, Sunbeam Alpines, MGBs, Triumph Spitfires, Austin Healy's, Porsche, Aboth, Porsche Carrera. No, they didn't have the Aboth in those days. Oh, they might have done. Certainly 904s, that was the, the Aboth was pre that. 904 Porsche, whatever else. And some of those cars were not quite road cars, some of them certainly in the GT categories were very closely aligned to road cars. And what you have now is GT AM, which is the pro version and uh, the, the amateur version. But you've got a plethora of LMP2 cars, which I actually wanted an LMP2 car to win this year, yeah. to make the point. Absolutely. To make the point that this technology, while it's extremely exciting for the manufacturers, and the side benefits to the organization because they get support from those manufacturers. What about the public? What yeah. about the people that go and pay their money to watch? What about the, the f I don't know how many people around the world might have watched the feeds, but it is interesting, and I think it's, it's something that should not go unnoticed, that in the UK, which is very supportive of Formula One, the amount of interest principally uh, in the newspapers, I know that motorsport supports 
no more very very heavily. But in newspapers, well, when Nick Tandy won yeah. last year, you got you got about that much coverage. And I believe, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that the the race has become so far removed from what the public are interested in. Make a formula that is maybe less complex. Find a way to get more Formula One teams or IndyCar teams or whatever to release their drivers to compete and and, and re return the race to its proper status. There were a number of IndyCar drivers, but they don't, they don't get the big seats. They get the GT seats, so they'll be in the four GTs. That was comprised of mainly um, IndyCar drivers. Yeah, but, but, but Scott Dixon would would you know for example probably the finest driver in America in single seater racing. And if you put him into an LMP1 Toyota or Porsche, he'd be up there with the best of the drivers. I think the American model is possibly the way to go for Le Mans because... Well, the DPs. Yeah, because you can open it to anyone. Any drivers can go and the teams can employ whoever they really want. Yeah. And that's what the way I would go, personally. I mean, it's been one view that's been um, expressed and what Le Mans will do. Le Mans will only do what's good for Le Mans, I believe, as opposed to what the public might want. But DP is one way, and it certainly would bring the cost base down by a substantial margin. And there's manufacturers. Yes, I mean, it, you've got branding on them. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, it, who are, who's running it now? Mazda going to run with, Yost. Honda's coming in with Roger Penske, Mazda with Cadillac. Yost. Um, with Nissan. The, uh, you've got the names, but ultimately, I don't think the names should be greater than the drivers, and I think it's the drivers that should be the foundation of any championship and the manufacturers should be there as the, the bridesmaid, but never quite the bride. Well, let's go back to the, the power of personalities, how, how the phrase you used just now. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to bounce back to your career and then we'll come back to modern okay. stuff as well. So the power of personality, Easter Monday, 1969, um, you went up against uh, Jochen Rint and Jackie Stewart. Um, did you feel at that point that you could beat these guys? How was your confidence in, in the car? I suppose it was a, a journey into the unknown because uh, a colleague in Northern Ireland, Jerry Canane, had purchased the two Lotus 48s and uh, we turned up at Thruxton and we didn't drive the car until I got there and John Pollock was the driver in the, in the second car and we went out and practiced and we had some issues and eventually we got a set of champ, no, was it, Autolighter champion plugs and that fixed the, the misfire, for example. But during the course of the, of the, the race, I found myself catching and overtaking people that I used to read about, which was slightly surreal experience, but I wasn't doing anything that was different to that I had done competing in the events that I was racing in in Northern Ireland. And it made me maybe appreciate better that actually maybe I had sufficient ability uh, to compete against named drivers and catch and overtake some of them, and uh, that there was a possibility with family support, because there was no commercial support at that time, to have an opportunity to go and race in Formula 2. Initially, what we had thought about doing in 1970 was actually doing a Formula 3 season, and then we changed and went and bought the, the BT30 to compete in the European Formula 2 Championship. So, in a sense, that was both the foundation of my dream becoming a reality, and almost my parents having to come to terms with the fact that, well, our son who we support and provide and whatever, actually has a career of his own that he wants to fulfill and follow. 
And I was very lucky to have the family and support my family to let me do that. You uh, did a piece on Formula 2 in the magazine a couple of months ago and you kindly contributed. Yeah. And there's a lovely image you gave me uh, talking about that season. I mean, just travelling, you and a mechanic, just the two of you, van, trailer. Yeah. Uh, Travelling around, and you, I mean, you made the comparison at the time of you know guys like Lance Stroll that have no idea what that was all about. Well, but, it's, but I mean, what, what what were some of the highlights of that year? You and your mechanic touring Europe. Together? I mean, obviously the first race at Thruxton in 1970, um, on the front row of the grid with actually in that case it was uh, Jochen Rint and Jackie Eakes. You know, wow. it's a bit strange to to find yourself... Well, the concept uh, of a three-car three front row is quite well strange it, nowadays. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But I mean, remember, these cars are quite small by the yes. standards of today. It all got set into perspective by going to Hockenheim. And I'd never raced in a circuit like Hockenheim with these long straights, no chicanes, and, and slipstring. No wings from memory. So I thought that I, could, I had the ability to lap quicker driving on my own as opposed to slipstreaming, and of course I, I didn't <laughs> qualify. And I went, you know, and uh, Brian Hart, who, whose workshops I was keeping my car in, had given me you know, some advice, but I thought I knew better. So I, I didn't get slipstreaming in that qualify those qualifying sessions, and uh, consequently didn't qualify. So that put things back into perspective. And then I think the race that followed that was in, in Barcelona on the Montjuï, your park, proper, proper, proper uh, that is without hesitation, question or whatever, contradiction, the best street circuit I've ever raced on. Magnificent. Every element that you'd want on a proper road track. And sometimes, I know racing drivers shouldn't have favourite circuits. They're meant to be professional. They're meant to just take emotion out and just perform. But Montjuï Park, I just thought was fantastic. Loved it. So that was another high. And then you know, ended up by, we got to Rouen, when coming up the other side of the valley, and there's a very fast right-hand corner onto the, what was the, the autobahn or autoroute, or whatever they call it in France. And I didn't realize that I had a, a left rear tire had been deflating. So I just midway through the corner and the tire and the rim parted company. And I went off and hit the barriers you know, heavily on both sides. And that was the end of the 1970 season. So that was the final reality check. The, the reaction being, no one told me you can get hurt. Because when you're young, you think you're probably, not necessarily you know, consciously think you get unhurt, but you always believe that it's never going to happen to you. And it could have been. That could have been a, a much more serious accident than it turned out. Nevertheless, it took me out of the season, um, or took me out of the rest of the season. But it didn't, it didn't deter you from jumping back in a car as soon as you could? Maybe I wasn't bright enough to recognise that you still sport, didn't realise you could get hurt. You couldn't realise you get hurt. It, it does change you. Once you realise, once you've been injured, I think there is a change uh, within your approach. And what you do is maybe, instead of tackling every issue head-on, every corner head-on, every competitor head-on, you look for possibilities to give yourself an escape route. I think that's the difference between having a big accident and getting injured. Over time, that, 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 that consequence sort of reduces but certainly I think in the early days you're, you're you're more conscious of the fact that if you go off here you could get seriously hurt. So 1971 um, the glamour of Bogner um, and 
I was also interested to read that George Brown is one of your unsung heroes. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about George and, and our, our readers and listeners may not know about him? Well, George, uh, I met George in 1970 when he worked with Church Farm Racing with Derek Bell and Mike Earl. And at the end of 1970, uh, Church Farm decided not to continue in, in the 71 season. And somewhere along the line, I'd spoken to Derek and said, look, George is available. Uh, there's a workshop space down at Church Farm at, at Pagham, available, and you can have it rent-free. Uh, I said, I'm coming, I'm, 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 I'll be over. I think I was in Belfast at the time. And George is one of these uh, amazing technicians, engineers, mechanics, whichever term fits. And in 1970, I had a very small budget, and I really had to finish every race to get the prize money to go on to the next race to get your start money to get your prize. So it was one of those years. And in 71, Formula 2 was extremely competitive. And also, it was the first year that a young Ron Dennis entered motorsport as a, as a, as a team owner with Rondell Racing. And they were running the f so almost the factory-run BT36 Brabham. And I had a BT30 with some 36 mods on it. A very competitive year. It was also the year that March introduced the 721, which was the first March monocoque, which was Ronnie was driving, then Nicky Lauda, Jean-Pierre Jusso, Jarier, God knows how many other people. Highly competitive year, so limit on what we could afford. And part of the, the budget constraints was, well, who would we get to build the engine? And George said, I'll do it. Well, what about the gearbox? <coughs> I'll do it. What about the chassis? Yeah, I'll do that as well. And what made George such a, a fantastic person to work with was that he would take an FVA engine apart, do all the work, and he would recognize when you needed something attending to that was beyond what he could do, engineering-wise. Gearbox, chassis. I mean, where are, where are those guys today? I suspect many of them are out there, but they work within the context your job description is that's what you do, and you don't do any more. Yeah, you become a, you, you <coughs> become a you become a damper specialist or whatever, or whatever. That's it. But it's it's that's very, it. It's very and what very George did, uh, he didn't have to do this at, at at Church Farm Racing because they had a sufficient budget to send their engines to Brian Hart, the gearboxes to Hewland or whoever else they were um, engaging. But George was one of those people. So we would drive through Europe, and that time it was a transit and a trailer share the driving, four hours on, four hours off, leave at maybe nine and 9.30 in the morning and drive until maybe 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. I mean, going to Harama, just outside Madrid, was a two and a bit day drive. I think it was very good for me because I learned to appreciate what I was being given the opportunity to do. And I didn't have a pop at Lance in particular because it's not his fault he was born into the circumstances he was and his family have done what they need to do to get lands to where he is. But I think th there are lots of youngsters in maybe a national level racing and single-seater racing who have got maybe a lot of material items too soon in their lives. And maybe you know th the motivation and the drive can be affected by that. So I think what I had was a an appreciation of what I was doing and, and a focus on what I would need to do to get to where I wanted to be. And you're also finding out about the real world. It was a real world in those days. I mean, you, you, you were only allowed to take 50 pounds on every trip because you had currency control regulations. And I mean, it was a lot more difficult 
we didn't have social media, we didn't have mobile phones, you know, that we survived. And it's a, just a, as a sat byline, one of the, one of my good friends and, and co-commentators, Jack Nichols, who now is Radio 5 Live's Formula One commentator, a number of years ago, seriously turned around and said, John, I don't know how you ever got by without, you know, internet and laptop and whatever. And it's just, that's how times are changing. So you didn't have a team of 80 people back in the garage in Pagham on laptops calling strategy? No, they were servicing the caravans <laughs> and church from Caravan Park, cleaning out, cleaning out the dunnies in the caravans. I'm going to jump to um, the Roger Penske yeah. era now. We, we had a really great conversation at the Hall of Fame about, yeah. about Roger Penske. Um, do, do you think Roger's efforts in Formula One are, are perhaps uh, under-recognised um, in terms of what he brought to the sport, his professionalism, the way he ran the team? I mean, what Roger, I think, brought to Formula One was a... It was a level of presentation initially, and part of the Penske image has been presentation, but also very strong engineering as well, and, and, and picking drivers that fit into the Penske ideal of what uh, the team is. The team is not about, let's say, one superstar, uh, prima donna or whatever, it's about a team. And when Roger entered Formula One and at the end of 74, and Jeff Ferris designed the car, Mark Donahue was the, 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 the family member within the, the Penske uh, empire. So it was quite a, a step for Mark and for Penske to come out of what they've been successful with in the States, albeit that they'd raced in Europe with the Ferrari 512M at Le Mans and other international events. So coming over, s establishing a base in down in Poole in, De in Dorset, Heinz Hoffer was the the person that Roger gave all the authority to, the delegation to. And Heinz was an outstanding person in every respect and a great team principal. So Roger brought lots of things that Formula One was beginning to be aware of, but I think in, termi in terms of the presentation and what he expected his cars to look like in terms of performance as well as just the image, that was something, I, I don't know whether it's right to say or not, but I think maybe someone like Ron Dennis might have been influenced by what Roger was doing in terms of the visuals of the car. So this actually links to a question we've got from a reader, Steve Salaski. Um, my first experience reading viewing you was 76 when you were with Penske. Um, do you think F1 should find a way to promote entrance like Penske now? Well, I think Formula One has to find a solution to the, 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 the issue that it's ended up in, in that it's, it's so ridiculously expensive, yeah. uh, unnecessarily expensive as well. And um, I would love to see more of what I enjoyed in my career in Formula One from the middle or early 70s through to the early 80s, wherein a, a guy called Frank something or other, what was his name, Frank? What do you call the bloke from Sly? Williams, Fra Frank Williams. <laughs> and started up, uh, had a car in the late 60s, yeah. then had the disaster of Pierce Courage, struggled a long time to get back into Formula One. But the fact is, that struggle has ended up with now one of the greatest teams in Formula One, yeah. with a legacy of world championships for team and drivers. Hopefully some point in the future the team can get back to that level, but I think it'll be very difficult because right now Formula One is 
principally dominated by manufacturers. And if you're not, um, if you haven't got direct manufacturer support, and the consequent financial budgets and support to go along with it, it's very hard to see how the likes of Williams or Force India or yep. uh, Toro Rosso or Saba or whoever, mm. even Haas. And Haas is a good example of a team that has come in, albeit with a great deal of background support from Ferrari. And even my fellow countrymen, diddly I die, die, little Darby O'Gill and the little folk called Eddie Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th th where are the Eddie Jordans? I mean, yeah. they are, there are people, I suspect, in various levels of motorsport, probably now F2, who would love to make the step from F2 into Formula One, but there's no money. There's, there's, no, there's no chassis either. That's the, we talk about customer engines so much, but Frank started with a customer chassis. So yes. many other manufacturers started with a customer chassis. F1 chassis, they, they have a year, they're mayflies, they have a year and yes. then they're out. Wouldn't that be an easy solution if they were allowed to sell the, the, the chassis and someone else could come in and use them the following it, it, year? It's one solution. I, I would still prefer to see a, a team's identity be in their chassis rather than having a, as you have an IndyCar, sure. for example, you've got a, a, a basically, I think, a single chassis. I think Formula One needs that demarcation between where IndyCar is and where Formula One should be. But if you think back to the 70s, it was relatively simple by today's standards to engage a, a young engineer, Patrick Head being the case in point with Frank Williams. And he brought with him young ideas and he was very quick to embrace the benefits of ground effect to very good effect. You had John Barnard at, at McLaren, uh, Gordon Murray, obviously, because Gordon's period at Brabham from 72, really, 73, all the way forward, and the BT49 and consequent you know, ground effect cars. I mean, Gordon is one of Formula One's, un well, he's a genius, he is a hero, and um, it needs people like that. And I would like to think there are still young engineers out there who would have enough uh, imagination and, and capacity to dream of what they c would be allowed to do if we had it's not so much the, the chassis itself that's relatively I think straightforward it's the, it's the engineering around it, the engines or the power units and the aerodynamics that need to be redressed. Yeah, I mean I grew up in the era of customer chassis and absolutely loved the fact there were privateer teams at the back like Hexagon for example running year old cars but if you did that now, you still need 200 people to run the flipping things because they're so complex. I mean, how many people did you have working on the Hexagon Brabham? Well, Four, five, six? I'll, I'll probably, uh, we went to a race, maybe 10 people in total, maybe not even that. And you could do that. We, Paul Michaels acquired a BT42. Uh, Alan McCall was engaged and he engineered the car, made some changes to it. I think with Frank Swanston, uh, George Zacharias, uh, Preston, I'm trying to think of the other names, probably less than a 10 people would go to a Grand Prix, and that would include the transportation. I don't think we're going to go back to those days, but I think that some of the cost cutting that Formula One should consider would, is it necessary to have such a massive support team? And while I don't want to see engineering become a customer car formula in total, but I think there are areas where there could be much more um, cost cutting, partly within whether you think a hybrid power unit is, is the way to go, I'm personally not a big fan, but I understand why manufacturers like it. But again, we're thinking about manufacturers, I'm not thinking about the user, the person that wants to sit down, who wants to be entertained. And I feel strongly that that's the, the area that Formula One needs to 
address. And I want to see people getting excited. And I want to see them focusing on drivers and not focusing on a driver because he's in a Mercedes or a Ferrari or a Red Bull or whatever it happens to be. I want them to follow the drivers. There will always be an element of brand support, but it should never be subjugated, um, or drivers should never be subjugated uh, by, by engines or power units or, or teams. There has been a shift, though. I remember in the mid-90s uh, as a child. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Uh, but I was that old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> fatal mistake if you grow up. <laughs> well, I, I remember I was no supporting Williams. I don't, it was irrelevant who was in the car, because it changed year on year, but I was following Williams as a team rather than who was in the car. So there must have been a shift at some point when the teams became more important than the drivers. I'm not sure when that would have been, but... Maybe because as many fans would do, if, if you saw, a, I mean, the archetypical British team was Williams. So for you, it was more important to have the team winning because it's a British team. It's a bit like watching maybe football. You don't give a sod about who the players are as long as it's England winning. I tend to have a slightly different perspective, but then, you know, I'm younger than you, so <laughs> that's what the younger generation is <laughs> be feeling. He's old before his time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause and... Um, Mercedes-Benz shop online, um, you'll be able to find anything from picnic hampers, barbecue sets, sunglasses and travel bags. Um, we believe there's a sale on right now, so if you're quick and you go to www.shop.mercedes-benz.com, you'll be able to see all sorts of stuff, um, including some cars for sale. Um, but yeah, picnic hampers, barbecue sets, sunglasses and travel bags. So there you go. Um, I'm going to move on to some reader questions now because we have um, <laughs> piles of them. So, and you guys feel free to jump in at, at any point. Um, but the first one, I think, do you know what? We're going to have to talk about the beard, John. I'm yeah, sorry, go but ahead. We're gonna, we, we've got to get this one out of okay. the way. So, uh, I'm going to put all three questions that we've had or that you've, I mean, there are more than three, but uh, we've got a short list of three. Were you faster without the beard? Would you regrow your beard in the interest of historical accuracy if offered a test in a BT44? And did you dread having to shave your beard off? And is it true that Roger Penske did not recognise you the next morning? Thanks to Matt and Dean Raleigh, Paul Punter, one of our contributors, and Tony Duran. So, um, first question: faster without the beard makes no difference whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, a beard was something I had when I was a young guy, and um, I did shave it off actually in about 1968 for about a year, and then I regrew it again. <laughs> Maybe it was an identity thing. It was nothing to do with speed. Well, this Paul Punter, a, a, a contributor, he, he's obviously pitching a story, yeah, exactly. isn't he? Yeah. Um, if, if, if you were offered a test in a BT44, you, would you regrow it? Well, it wouldn't be the same, <laughs> because in 1974, the beard was a, 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 a strong, rich, you know, chocolatey brown. A hipster beard. It, well, it was a full beard. I mean, it was a, it was a beard. And uh, today, I mean, if I was to dean to let it grow again, uh, I would make me look even more mature or elegant <laughs> or barking mad than I am. Well, so it wouldn't be the same. It would be the same amount of hair, I suspect, but <laughs> you wouldn't recognise it because it would look like um, anybody of my age would have a white beard. We'll, we'll stick with elegant, I think. Um, did Roger Penske recognise you the next morning? What happened after Austria, we flew back. Roger Heinz and myself flew back. And we stayed overnight at one of the Heathrow hotels because Roger was flying out the following morning and we just wanted to have a quick, you know, post-race, whatever, summary. And when I got to my room, 
went into the bathroom, got the razor out, shaved it off actually that night. And because 76 had been a particularly hot summer, you know, everybody was well suntanned. And all of a sudden I had a, you know, a big white <laughs> patch <laughs> around my chin. <laughs> my side of anyway, I came down to breakfast in the morning and I was down before Roger or Heinz and sitting there in the coffee shop. And Roger walked in and I remember his voice saying, where's Watson, where's Watson? I said, Roger, over here. But I didn't indicate, where is he? <laughs> <laughs> and he, I think, was probably more surprised that I had taken the beard off with such haste. I wanted to shave it. I'd had enough, by that stage, you know, the novelty had worn off. But it was, uh, it was more an issue about, we had sort of had a, an agreement that when we won our first Grand Prix, I would then shave the beard. And the reason why maybe I didn't shave it prior to the 76 season was that I suppose everybody would say, oh, well, Roger told me to do it. You know, Roger doesn't <laughs> like, you know, every, he wants everybody in the team to have maybe you might describe as an Ivy League appearance because it went with the, 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 the whole sense of, of how the car should look, the appearance of the team, presentation of the car. And here's this sort of, sort of, 30-odd or 20-year-old hippie-type longish hair beard, <laughs> where does this fit into the uh, Penske sort of idiom of what a racing team should look like? So I was quite happy to shave it off. It was no stress, believe me. Okay, 1977. This is a question from Charles Norman. Uh, the Brabham BT45 Alpha looked very strong, and you drove superbly at Silverstone and Dijon, looking odds-on to win both. It's been reported that the car was very fuel-thirsty and ran low towards the end of both races. Was that correct? The, in Dijon, I don't fully understand what happened. I don't know if anybody does to this day, but the Brabham, uh, oh sorry, the Alfa Romeo engine was a, a lovely engine to drive, mm. but it was probably more fuel thirsty than the DFE. So the startup weight for car per car would have been higher. And what happened in Dijon was in the final lap, down at the far end of the circuit, Herpen Bend, coming out of it, the engine just went, uh, uh, uh. and Mario, who had been, you know, we had been racing for the lead for the best part of, what, two thirds or whatever of the race, he didn't need to be invited. So he, he literally got the acceleration out of that Herpen Bend while I was stuttering out of it. And once he got ahead, then there was only three corners and I wasn't able to return, get back at him. So that was a huge disappointment to, to everybody in the Brabham Alfa Romeo team, not least of all to me, because it would have been the first victory for Alfa Romeo as a Formula One entrant or engine supplier, all the way back to the 50s when they were running the 159s. Yeah. And then the race following was at Silverstone had another fuel issue, which I think was a different issue. That was to do maybe with the, the flaps and the fuel valves. I think maybe one of them had been fitted incorrectly and it was the fuel, there was tons of fuel in the car. Mm. Just be, it wasn't just getting wasn't into getting the there. collector and therefore I had to come in, we refueled it and went back out again. And after another 10 or 12 laps, it, the situation repeated itself. So it, at that point, I think the car was retired. So there, there were fuel issues, but different, sure. different ones. Okay. Um, I, this is a question that I, I should have submitted, but then I remembered I'm actually hosting this, so I can ask whatever the hell I yeah, like. Really. So, um, the fan car, I think we're all in many ways are obsessed yes. with the fan car. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard it said that the, the car, or maybe Bernie withdrew the car to, to save Formula One, but uh, this is almost an impossible question to, to answer, but with your sage or soothsayer hat on, where would Formula One have gone if the fan car was, um, was, was allowed, had it hadn't been banned? 
Well, I think that, first of all, Gordon Murray designed the fan car around the principle that we can't do a ground effect car with the BT46 because it's, it's the triangular shape monocoque didn't yeah, permit it. Yeah. And the part of the reason the, the triangular shape was because that was a very strong structure uh, in terms of uh, torsional rigidity. But also the flat 12 Alfa Romeo engine, as with the flat 12 Ferrari engine, was not a suitable candidate for a ground effect car. Sure. So Gordon looked around and saw what Chaparral had done. And while they used an auxiliary engine to deliver yeah. the, the fan power. It was a snowmobile engine, wasn't it, in the, in the Chaparral, if I seem to remember? It was a Kawasaki yeah, snowmobile I'm not sure what it was a snowmobile engine, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, so what Gordon did, and this is where Gordon is exceptionally clever, and, and, and his lateral uh, views on engineering and how can we come up with an answer to a problem, they organized uh, a fan that was driven directly from the engine and the radiator was placed uh, above that so the, the idea was the fan would suck air through the radiator and somehow it would get exhausted out the back and of course it was all considered by such notables as Colin Chapman and his principal Lieutenant Mario Andretti so they were when they saw the fan car in Anderstorp they went nuts they went apoplectic because they realized that what gave the fan car an advantage over a ground effect car was that the fan was driven at gear speed as opposed to a ground effect car, which was road speed. And in Anderstorp, a lot of the corners were parabolic corners and there weren't high speed corners. So the, the level of ground effect that the Lotus had in those corners was significantly less than it would have had in high speed corners. And the Brabham benefited from running the, or the gearing that you're in. So sucking down, in other words, 10,000 RPM or 12,000 RPM in second gear was getting the same amount of suction that it would get at the same RPM in sixth gear. So the circuit was actually probably an ideal circuit for, yeah. for the fan car. And Nicky won the race. And I mean, Mario, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions, but <laughs> some of the lies that he and Chapman were purporting were just, I mean, outrageous. I mean, remember Mario said, that car's throwing rocks. It's going to hit somebody in the head and kill him. Yeah. What's wrong with you then? <laughs> so they they wanted the thing banned. They wanted it banned there, but Bernie had brought the car. There was no, well, you couldn't convert the car overnight. And I think that Ken Terrell was standing on the table spitting bullets, literally, as Ken used to have froth jobs. <laughs> Teddy Mayer was going, <laughs> and Chapman was getting, you know, he was doing, and Colin was pretty, a very clever guy. He understood what was going on and knew the danger that Formula One would get into if it followed what Gordon had done. And, and whether it would have been possible to have fitted a fan to a DFE in the way that it was attached mm. to the flat 12 engine probably wouldn't have been as easy because the flat 12 engine, every 180 degrees, so the intakes are on the outside of the engine, mm. whereas the 90 degree V8, it's on the top. So it might not have been quite as simple a thing to do, but. I'm sure teams would not have taken a long time, and Chapman in particular, to find a way to install a fan on already in a ground effect car. So you'd have had cars with a, a, a cornering performance, which would have certainly outstripped the circuits that we were racing on at the time. And you've seen as the consequence of what happened at the in 94, how all of a sudden you had a massive rethinking about circuit safety, yeah. runoff areas, and consequently the, you know, the, the construction of cars and driver safety. It would have been an interesting uh, exercise. It would have probably 
raised cost thresholds significantly, and you'd have had cars that would have been literally like slot cars. Mm. I mean, they'd have been cornering at ridiculously high speeds for the technology. So the structures that the cars were built from, aluminium and, and uh, steel, would not have been sufficient to allow you maybe to exploit the full potential. And that's where carbon fiber then would have been, it might have come forward a bit earlier, but um, it, the importance of carbon fiber was not the material, it was the use of the material. And that's what John Barnard pioneered. The, did it require a massively different approach to drive between the, the, from the 46 to the 46B? With the, with the well, the first thing was in the paddock when we were waiting to go out for practice or qualifying, and Bernie would lean into the cockpit and say, don't rev the engine, don't rev the engine. What did you say, Bernie? Don't rev the engine. And of course, he had his, because he had to lean forward, his toes were under the side of the monocoque. So every time you the toe, <laughs> nipped his toes, don't rev the engine. You couldn't make it up. So you could sit in the car, rev the engine, you could feel the car physically dropping, wow. coming down. Um, I think that the the art of using the gra of using the fan car was to enter slow, exit quick. In other words, get the engine. Don't go in on a trailing throttle. You know, doing all this sort of stuff and then getting on the throttle late. You you ideally you'd come into the corner, brake slightly earlier, pick up the throttle and get the fan to do what it was meant to do, to give you the initial bite at the entry to the corner and then nail it all the way through. So that was th the slight difference. And um, compared to a conventional, forget about a ground effect car, because nobody knew what a ground effect car was like to drive until Lotus rocked up with it, initially in 77 with the 78, then in 78 with the 79. So we were running conventional aerodynamics, front rear wings, and a couple of teams, I think Penske did flirt with having uh, Plexix, little glass deflectors on the front of the nose. McLaren, mm. I think, tried it. Certainly Gordon had tried it in the BT44s but not to the degree that we got to with Grand Effects. Last thing on the BT46B, did you sandbag quite a bit during practice? I think we may have had a fair amount of fuel on board because, again, we didn't want to raise the temperature. The already fever-driven <laughs> principles, <laughs> Chapman, Tyrrell, Mayer, I don't know who was at Ferrari's, was a Figueri, you know, going apoplectic. So it, it was, we, were, we were asked to bear in mind that this is a very sensitive situation we're in. Bernie's having to fight, you know, from the back foot. He has got no allies. Mm. I mean, it was, a, it was very close to a point, I understand, where there could have been a fracture within the, the, the team's group, the folk or whatever they were called, or FIA, whatever, FICA, whatever they called themselves in those days. And Bernie did the, the, the right thing. He said, look, I can't change the car. I've got the two cars here. Let me run them. And uh, thereafter, I'll take all the stuff off. And what gave me, actually, not in so much in Sweden, but in the French Grand Prix that followed, immense pleasure was to take the bog-standard BT46 and end up in pole position for the French Grand Prix. But they, the looters in the race pissed past us, so whatever. You, but we got the satisfaction of you know, giving them a little bit of what they thought they were going to get. What a great picture that that paint. Um, <laughs> there you are, Mario. <laughs> I don't remember seeing that on the. <laughs> it was just fun, yeah. but you know, it 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 meant a lot to me, and it meant a lot to Gordon and to Bernie. I think. Right, we're going to jump to the McLaren era now with a question from Ricardo to Carto. Um, 
Uh, it's a similar question around innovations in Formula One. How was mm. the sensation when you drove the carbon fibre McLaren for the first time? Well, when we, or when I drove it for the first time, it actually was at a, uh, the launch of the car at Silverstone. And it was a horrible, bloody wet day. And I think, actually, I'm not sure, but I don't think we even had the aero tunnels under the car. It was just simply, we just rolled it out. And the only difference that I noticed was that how unyielding carbon fibre is as a material compared to aluminium. Yeah. So it was a matter of you had to tuck your elbows in when you were driving rather than having them slightly out. If you hit an alum, the, the tub, an aluminium tub with your elbow, it hurt, but you got over it. If you hit the carbon fibre tub with your elbow, it hurt for a long time. It is so unyielding as a material in terms just of the, the, the amount it gives, even with a, an elbow, aluminium will give a small amount. That's why wings don't fall off aeroplanes you know, when they mm -hmm. bend over an arc of 30 or 40 feet. It, it, it's got a flexibility, but carbon fibre principally, uh, in the case of the, the, the tub and the McLaren, was not designed to yield. It was designed to give you a much greater rigidity uh, and therefore more accuracy in terms of, of the chassis performance, but also repeatability. And just the way that John designed the, the, the tub, he designed it in conjunction with, um, was it out in Salt Lake City? What was the company name? What's it gone? I can't know. Anyway, they used the material in the manner in which it was intended to be used. Mm. Whereas other teams, I think, jumped on the carbon fiber bandwagon and kind of maybe designed it in a, a similar way to how they would have designed an aluminium car, yeah. which was a mistake. Yeah. And a number of drivers did suffer injuries um, because of maybe a misuse of the material rather than fully understanding it. Yeah. Um, and of course, you, you had your, your accident at, at Monza yeah. in 81. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you, do you feel you, your life was saved by carbon fiber at that point? Uh, I, I think there's a very strong argument to say I could have had a, a much more serious injury. Yeah. Potentially, you might have lost your life. I'd, I've never thought back and said, oh, thank God I didn't die that day. I just stepped out of the car, walked back to the pit, said, sorry, guys, <laughs> it's a bit of a mess, and moved forward. Yeah. But I think you know, John Barnard, and John's got a, a biography or an autobiography coming out very shortly. And this clearly is a, a significant part of it because it illustrated the, the, the value and the quality of the material and the fact that I was able to step out of the car mm. totally uninjured, minus the engine gearbox, which ended up going across the track. And I think Michele Alberto clipped it and he then had an accident further down the road. Mm. The, the, the technology that uh, John introduced and then became the norm in Formula One was, was a landmark for our transition in, in Formula One engineering, safety, everything. And I had one big accident which was obviously televised but maybe more to the point and sadly the late Andrea de Cesaris who was in his first Formula One year with me. Andrea had about 16 or 17 accidents through the course of the season. And the car was repaired, and okay, did a lot of damage to suspension and to bodywork, but never got injured. Yeah. And I think that was the, the transition in terms of what the material could provide for cons cons consistency, continuity, safety, rigidity, and particularly in the era of ground, of, of ground effects, yeah. 
how can you get that torsional rigidity with, with, with light weight? Yeah. And that's what it gave. You couldn't really achieve that with a lightweight aluminium and a traditional chassis. If you got the stiffness, then you had weight. So the carbon fiber factor was the one that gave us lightweight and, and great torsional strength. Okay. And of course, you have the honor of scoring the first Grand Prix victory for a carbon fiber Formula One car, yep. Silverstone in 81. Um, I think that was the last Grand Prix I paid to watch. I think uh, everyone I've been to since I've had a press Sneaking pass. Sneaking under the fence, yeah. <laughs> Never, <laughs> more, more I've had a press pass. But, press, but, uh, but I, was, I was at the outside of uh, Woodcote that day, and one of the things I saw early on was um, you managing to avoid the Villeneuve, Alan Jones shunt, and your teammate, Mr. Duchesris, who was further from the yes, accident, yes. actually getting involved in it. Um, what, what are your... I mean, it was a very passionate day. First, I think it was the first... British Grand Prix driver to win a race since James, wasn't it? Yes, it um, was. And in for four years, from 1970 I mean, I remember the, there was a fantastic atmosphere towards the end of the race as you were yes. catching our new and so on. What, what are your recollections of the day? Well, the, the incident at, at Woodcote was an accident waiting to happen because Gilles was in the Ferrari, which it was, was a route master bus. one of the worst Ferraris probably ever, ever raced. I mean, where Gilles, I felt, shone, was in a, a car that was a, a much poorer car than the competition. And he just drove the wheels off him and in this case he just it just he was going through the chicane and it was just it was going to happen one way or the other and Alan was close enough behind him that when it did happen the amount of blue smoke went up Alan got disorientated didn't know where he was I think he nudged into the Ferrari fortunately I was five car six car lengths back and I was looking through the corner watching what was going on ahead of me so I was able to get on the brake slow down and avoided contact with the two ahead of me in the process, I'd, the engine had stalled because I'd had to brake very heavily and I was focusing and trying to see where I was going. And Andrea, who was behind me, who was doing what any novice or young guy would do, he was driving, looking at my gearbox, not looking through the corner. And that's what you get with maturity. You, you learn with age. So you shouldn't be looking directly at the car ahead of you. You should be looking a little bit beyond it. But and Andrea saw my car almost at a standstill. He turned sharp left to avoid hitting me and had his own accident. So once the smoke cleared and I had still a little bit of momentum, I got the car back into gear, lifted the clutch, put the fuel pump on, bump, 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 and off it went. And you know, I'd passed, I think, a couple of cars before I got up to the tail of Alan. My car was very good on the day, and I was looking forward to getting past both of those two, but where it was going to happen is hard to tell because you know, the speed of the turbo Ferrari was always a disadvantage for a DFE. You're quicker around the corners, you're later on brakes, but that thing only had to squirt down the straight, as Gilles did very successfully two races earlier in Harama, and even earlier than that in Monte Carlo, where he won both those races in a car that was a poor car, but he used it to full effect. So getting past Alan may not have been so difficult, but getting past Gilles was going to be a struggle. So he made it easier, in effect, by taking himself and Alan out. Uh, we are we're running out of time, chaps. I'm afraid, but there, there are a few more questions yep. from from our readers. I'd like I'd like to go through. Um, we actually stole the last two questions from some readers, and I didn't credit them. So thank you to Jamie Smith and Dave Number Seven for your two questions there. Um, let's jump to Ray in Toronto. Um, your recollections of the end of '83 when Renault Prost had their falling out, and he suddenly became available on the market. Were you out of contract? Or were you bought out? Mm. He's um, 
Yeah. Well, it was, the, it was a normal. It was it was the normal <laughs> scenario. You know, you kept dangling by the team as to what uh, their future thoughts were for '84. And uh, in South Africa, the race was on a Saturday, and uh, on the way back to the airport or on the plane back. Someone in the team said, oh, I suppose we might have to talk to you about next year then. <laughs> I said, yeah, do it now if you like. Got back back into London on Sunday morning. Uh, Alain Prost had flown back to France and arrived in Paris at the same time and was, I believe, summoned to the Regé, the Renault headquarters, and apparently was fired. Reasons for which... I've never heard formally explained, but there are lots of very unpleasant suggestions. But I can't talk about Tell them. Tell us more, no. John. Go on, it no, was no, years no. ago. It's fine. Anyway, whatever no reason, Alan got the, he got the P45. And he then immediately called, uh, I think, John Hogan at, at Philip Morris uh, because he still had an association from his McLaren days in 1980 and said, you know, um, I've been fired. Uh, can you get me in at Ferrari? And John, I believe, this is all hearsay, said, no, Ferrari seats are confirmed, but we've got a seat available at McLaren. And Alan thought, well, you've got Nicky and John. And it was explained to him that Nicky has a contract for, two th uh, for 1984. Mm. John hasn't, and we would like to talk to you. So it was a no-brainer, to be honest. I mean, as much as I've, I lost out, uh, and I've said this on a number of occasions, if I'd been in the situation of, of the sponsor and the team, I would have done the same thing because what McLaren had at that time were two, in terms of age, senior drivers. And at some point, one or both would be deciding to go off and go fishing or go flying airplanes or whatever. And they would then have to turn around and go into the market and buy at the top of the market an appropriate replacement. And Alain was the gift horse because obviously there would have been some compensation from Renault and therefore he would have been an inexpensive acquisition. But more importantly, he represented the future because as an outstanding you know, potential world champion and, and Grand Prix winner, it's a no-brainer. So the deal was done, I think, very quickly. And I remember getting a call from Nicky, on the, I think maybe on the Monday or the Tuesday, to say, be careful, Alain is t talking to Philip Morris, talking to McLaren. Because Nicky didn't want Alain in the team. He knew that he represented a, th a challenge that when he might have to raise his game. He thought, having me as a teammate, he thought he could control me, which, of course, you know, let him think whatever he likes. As it turns out, um, I never got the chance to find out. And, and Alain got the opportunity, and he went on to win his first world championship in 1985. So for McLaren and for Marlborough, it was clearly the right decision where maybe for me it was disappointing was that I didn't have control over my future. And I think every driver would like to have that r opportunity to say whether they wish to continue and have the chance to negotiate or to turn up and say, look, I've done 10 years, 151 Grand Prix, and I think I'm still alive. I'm prepared to say now is the time to stop. But you never, never really thought what, I mean, you left the team just as it was about to win three straight world titles. Yes. You never thought what if. Well, I, I can do, but of course, what if is only what if. Mm. You don't know what would have happened. And I mean, Nicky won the championship by half a point in 1984. Mm. Um, what if I'd been in, in the other car? Would he have won it by 
half a point or would I have won it or would he have won it by a country mile? I don't know. Those are ifs, ands or buts, so I don't really go there because it's a hypothetical. So all I can reflect upon is what I did do um, uh, rather than what might have been. I'm going to actually jump back to a what if, I'm afraid. Um, but this one's Anthony Jenkins. Question from Anthony Jenkins. Thank you, Anthony. Um, just how good was your countryman, Tommy Byrne? Did he have world champion level in him? I know you've been asked before, yep. but it would be interesting uh, to hear your thoughts on Tommy. I think Tommy is an illustration of a driver who had natural ability. Uh, you, know, you could see that in his Formula 4 days and Formula 3 days. I think where he lacked was in self-discipline. And when he drove a McLaren, he did a, a really outstanding job at yeah. a test at Silverstone. Uh, drove the car at that point quicker around Silverstone than anybody had ever done before. So that marked him out as being a guy who'd got natural ability, but I think it was the lack of discipline. And possibly also when he got to drive, I think it was the Theodore, or was it mm. or the, the Theodore? Theodore yeah. Which was not, by any stretch of the imagination, the best car. He then probably, rather than sucking it up and doing the best job he could and, and not maybe being vocal about it, do, do what he could with what he had and hope that people might recognize that. But the, the amazing thing for me is that I don't think any Formula One team took it any further. I yeah. think once he's at the end of 83 or whenever it was, I don't think anybody in Formula One had a discussion with Tommy Byrne. I don't mm -hmm. know why, but maybe they saw the, the pluses and they saw other elements which they thought might be negatives and the calculation said maybe the negatives aren't um, oh, there's too many negatives, not enough pluses. You can have a guy who is ill-disciplined as long as he delivers. I mean, there's been a legacy of those drivers in Formula One, yeah. and some of them have been world champions. But they've got enough self-discipline when it counts to do what they have to do to, to win either a race or win a world championship. I don't think Tommy had that. But whether he was educational enough, I don't know. Mm. It's a shame. Because mm. that level of natural ability and talent, it's a shame to see it last, but it was in his own hands, I'm afraid. Sure. Um, is it a kind of a related question, actually, from Oscar Matsurath? Thank you, Oscar, for your question. Um, uh, you once said during your one-off race for McLaren in 85 at Brands, uh, you followed Ayrton Senna through Dingledale and couldn't believe the things he was doing with the car. Um, do you think he was markedly better than Prost and Lauder? Um, one question I'd like to add to that, Senna realised he needed discipline, didn't he? Couldn't rely on his talent. What, what, give, us, give us an overview of that 85, <laughs> following him in 85, and then what Senna managed to, t how he managed to turn his sort of, his discipline around. Well, Ayrton was obviously being Brazilian, um, he was probably from the more emotional side of the racing driver than maybe some from more, uh, well, you might call them Germanic, backgrounds. So, I mean, 85 at the race of uh, the Europe, uh, Grand Prix, what, European Grand Prix or European whatever it was Grand called. Prix, yeah, yeah. Um, that brief moment when Senna in the Lotus at Brands Hatch was just in qualifying untouchable, just stunning to watch. And, and at that brief moment through Dingledale and up into Dingledale Corner, I'd never seen a Grand Prix driver do what Ayrton was doing in the Lotus. Mm. Um, it was just mind-boggling and the speed he was carrying and the commitment I mean there was no margin for error but that was with totally within his grasp it wasn't something he was doing 
you know, like a, a one-lap wonder. He was truly gifted in the skill of qualifying. And I've never seen a driver, I think, since who's illustrated that commitment and that ability. And I've often wondered why or what it was that he had. Yeah. I once asked him a question uh, and I got a slightly ratty answer from him. Well, I'll not go into it now. That's for another podcast in about five years' time. Yep. Um, <laughs> so I just thought, there's nobody I have seen. And Alan, I was sharing mm. in the same McLaren car as Alan was in. Uh, and Keke, th- Mansell was in a, in a Williams. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, was Keke in the Williams as well? Keke was in the Williams 85, yeah. I mean, just the guy was a genius behind the wheel of a race car. And that genius then, when it moved forward, and when Alan and Ayrton were together in the McLaren, they both achieved similar goals, but by different routes. And I think it, it made Alan uh, an outstanding uh, competitor. But the raw, raw speed that Senna you know, possessed, I, I've not really seen that, I think, in the same, same areas that mm. uh, I've seen it with Senna. Sure. Is anyone today you see has that raw speed? I mean, we, we talked about Verstappen before well, we I went mean, on air. It's Max, obviously, is... Uh, a guy who's got phenomenal car control skills and particularly you know, overtaking, braking. He does things, if you think back, it was Japan last year. Um, he, he's, he's got a, an, he has got that extra spatial awareness yeah. when he is making these decisions. And, and I, I would look at the two people, and I think Ayrton was a highly intelligent uh, individual. I mean, not just in a race car, just in, in, you know, intellectually and in, intelligence-wise. And I, I think Max is probably somebody who hasn't got that similar degree, but he is streetwise, like you can't believe, behind the wheel of a race car. And it's all basically very easy for him. Yeah. Uh, I think he needs f- a further education. I think the team could do better with that talent and, and helping him to understand that winning a race is more about coming first on the last lap than trying to win it on the opening lap. Sure. But he's got a prodigious talent, and I would like to see that talent being better educated than, than the team are currently doing. I think the team are using his talent to make up for some of the deficiencies within their package. Sure. To the detriment, and I say this with great sadness, because I think D- Danny Ricardo is an outstanding racer and a great race driver, um, when you get a team focusing on a driver because they think he might get a better result rather than giving both drivers the f- the f- their full attention, I sometimes feel that's a mistake. Sure. One other thing uh, we chatted about before we came on air, and we are running short of time, so it doesn't give you too long to rant, but the subject of halos on Formula One cockpits. John Watson, you have two minutes. This is also a, ha- a question. A halo is something should be above your head on a Christmas card. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you want to, if drivers are so paranoid about losing their lives, and it's an awful thing to say, no driver wants to lose his life as a racing driver. I know some people in the media think, or maybe people in the audience think, you know, maybe the ultimate destiny for a racing driver is to die behind the wheel. Well, I don't subscribe to that but I don't feel that the halo is the answer. And I think if, they, if drivers are really intent on ensuring that they, there's nothing that will ever occur, a wheel getting loose, a suspension getting loose, a, bo- a nose or bodywork getting loose, there is only one solution, in my view, to 
ensure that that will not lead to a fatality, and that is to end up with a Formula One car with a cockpit not dissimilar to what an LMP1 car would have. So it's a fully enclosed, a bit like if you look at some of the power racing boats, the hydroplanes, they've almost got a, a self-contained ejector seat pod. Yeah. And that's the only way I can say. I think the halo or the, the, the bubble screen, I mean, Carsten made a bubble screen for a Protoss Formula 2 car mm -hmm. in 1967. Yeah. And they had to cut a slot in the damn thing so the driver could see where he was going. Yeah. It's not the solution. And I think if, if drivers feel sufficiently strongly about it, they should then insist on having something entirely different and properly engineered, thought out and executed. Or stop being a driver and go off and be an accountant. Well, accept it for what it is. It's very interesting. I mean, one of our readers, A.S. Gilbert, has, has phrased this really well, actually. He says, um, to me, it looks disturbingly under-evolved. That there is a danger there, isn't it? That, that it, it, it may it may be rushed. Well, it's it, I I I'm a not a, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I don't know the figures. I don't know the, what research has been done on it. But it's not the in my view, it's not the solution. And I my view, the solution should be, as I say, a, a fully enclosed cockpit, like a racing hydroplane, or similar to an LMP1 car. Obviously, we wouldn't have the full width bodywork. But that's the only solution I understand, from my limited knowledge, that would provide the kind of assurances that I think contemporary Grand Prix drivers are looking for. And I, I'm not persuaded that every driver believes a halo is the answer. But I think because of pressures within uh, the FIA now, that if there were to be another incident, um, you know, Henry Surtees or, or Justin Wilson, I put the Jules Bianchi thing aside because that was that was a separate issue and that could still occur halo or no halo uh, I would like a, a, a better research program to be initiated to, th to think of a solution that would work in my limited knowledge and my no limited engineering engineering skill I don't think the halo is the answer okay um, two final questions that um, will test your memory um, this is from Chris Hall Whilst on the subject of Rouen, uh, Rouen, uh, this is because he asked another question, but we haven't got time for that one, I'm afraid, Chris. But um, Rouen, was the chicane used in 1971 before or after the Gressel curve at the back of the circuit? Enthusiasts <laughs> have been seeking the answer for years, and no one seems to have the uh, definite answers, so I thought I'd ask someone who was there. Uh Certainly in 1970, there was nothing. It was just the raw circuit. And uh, it, I mean, raw is a fantastic racetrack, a proper racetrack. In 71, I think it was still as it was. But then I raced there the next time, I think it was 74. And there was a chicane somewhere. But it's obviously, in fact, we used a revised circuit. It was a shorter circuit. We didn't end up using that long autoroute bit. So that was a revised circuit. And I... Do you remember where the chicane was? Haven't was it got before or after? <laughs> <laughs> haven't got a Chris. Oh, sorry, Chris. We sorry, about that. For you. sorry about that. It's, it's called... We'll look it up. No, no. Sorry. The reason is it's called Alzheimer's Light. <laughs> Light. L-I-T-E. <laughs> Might be if you like the beer. <laughs> right, okay. Um, this was an interesting one because I, was, I wasn't actually aware that you, you drove the Active Williams in... Yes, uh, end of 93. <coughs> yeah. Peter Bookervan. Um, how smooth is the ride? There we go. How smooth was the ride? Well, uh, tell us about that car. Once a late racing driver described his Formula One car, it rides like a Packard. Now, the question is to you, Nick, the question is to you, Simon, which driver 
described his Formula One car, had a ride like a Packard. It's got to be a, well, it's a US driver. Um, it's not Mario. You said late. Yes. Donahue. I'll put you out of your misery because we're running out of time. <laughs> Peter Revson. Peter Revson. What the, what the, that particular incarnation at uh, FW, was it 12, 13, 14? I'm not sure. What was that, the 13, was it, in 93? Oh, I'm not sure. It is probably the most it's remarkable Formula One car I've driven outside of a W125 Mercedes-Benz. Uh, because, well, at Paul Ricard, the surface is very smooth, mm. so you didn't really... But what it did was it had continuity, consistency of ride height control. So the aerodynamics and the, its efficiency was always consistent. But that car had power steering, power brakes, traction control in, in not, I don't want to demean what Nigel did in 1992 or Alain did in 93, but clearly they had a car with a significant advantage over their competitors. And McLaren kind of got close, but it was only at the end of the year and after the experience of the Lamborghini engine, when they extended the wheelbase and they got then the benefits of the, of the ground effect or the active suspension, that they actually closed up and maybe overtook mm. Williams. It was just a remarkable car. And as a, you know, there were, I think Jochen Maas, Allard Kalf, myself, Derek Daly, maybe one or two others drove it and just jumped into it. And the car did, I mean, all you had to do was sit there and hang on. I think Jochen went flat out through scene because the Germans do that sort of <laughs> zing. Um, but the, the car was so good. It just went mm, yeah. flat out through scene. Wonderful. So who was quickest then that day? Come I, on, I think, <laughs> I don't know. I suspect Jochen would have been because he was yeah. quick through scene. Yeah. Right. Do you know what? We, we are going to have to wrap this up. There's been a, a wonderful podcast. Thank you very, Pleasure. very I enjoyed much. Pleasure. I enjoyed it very John. much. Thank you. Um, and thanks to Simon and thanks to Jack. Um, keep subscribing to the, uh, to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. Um, enjoy the website as well. I have to thank Alan Hyde as well, who's, um, who's behind the camera and be, uh, behind the mic as well. So thanks to him. Um, yeah, stay tuned. We've got some great guests coming up. And um, yeah, thanks again, John. That was a magnificent podcast. Well thank you. I enjoyed it very thank much. You. What do you think of when someone says the word Used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best. Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used. Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today and you'll see what I mean. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to.